The snow was starting to come down heavy now. They were in the middle of a blizzard, and school was being let out early for the day. Being a teacher, she made sure all of her children got out of school and on their way home safely. But if only, she could have kept herself safe that day, too. or welcome back. I'm Cassie and this is A Wicked World. Thanks for joining me today. The case I have for you is one that makes you wonder why has it taken this long for them to re-examine it? It's taken 12 years and there's still no exact cause of death. What the police say happened is just absolutely insane in my opinion. But let me know what you think after you've watched the video. This is the story of Ellen Greenberg. Ellen Ray Greenberg was born on June 23, 1983, in New York, New York. She was an only child to her parents, Joshua and Sandra Greenberg. After high school, Ellen attended Penn State, where she graduated with a degree in communications. Though a few years later, she decided that she had another passion in life, teaching, so she attended night classes at Temple University. Ellen then got a job as a teacher at Juanita Park in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where she taught first grade. Since Ellen was such a kind and nurturing person, many of her students adored her. Ellen was known to be a girly girl, but was also very athletic. She was said to be sweet, outgoing, had many friends, and was a voice that would always stand out in the crowd. Ellen met and started dating Samuel Goldberg in 2008. He was 25 at the time, just a year older than Ellen, and he was also a TV producer. So Ellen lived in an apartment in Philadelphia with her fiancé, Samuel Goldberg. The couple was engaged by the summer of 2010. Ellen and Samuel had set their wedding date for August of 2011. On January 21st, Ellen and her friend of 17 years, Allison Stern, went dress shopping for Ellen's upcoming wedding. Allison said that Ellen did not quite seem herself that day. She seemed disheveled and worried. Ellen was always so put together, so to see her even a little disheveled was very out of character. Allison also said that Ellen seemed very sad that day, and at one point in the dressing room, she cried to Allison and said, I'm so sorry, I'll get it together. She didn't tell Allison exactly what was wrong, and Allison, not wanting to ruin the special wedding dress shopping day, decided not to press her at the time, though normally she says she would have. The following day, Ellen sent out her save-the-date invitations for the wedding. Then on January 26th of 2011, a blizzard hit the Philadelphia area. Ellen was supposed to be at work. However, due to the blizzard, school had closed early. So Ellen got gas and returned to her Venice Lofts apartment where she lived with Samuel. That day, Samuel was also home. At 4.45, he decided to go down to the gym for a little while. The gym was right in the apartment complex, so Samuel was only gone for 30 to 45 minutes before he returned back to the apartment. However, when he returned, the door was locked, and when he knocked, Ellen wasn't answering. Samuel had his key with him, but when he tried to unlock it, he realized that the door was locked from the inside. The swing bar which is the kind of lock you can only lock from the inside, was locked. So Ellen must have locked it. 
So he started yelling to her, Ellen, come open the door. This is not funny. Open the door. Obviously it had to be her. There was no one else in there. Since he was getting no response, he tried to call her, text her, and even email her. Over the course of 22 minutes, he sent multiple text messages to her, some of them saying, Hello? Open the door. What are you doing? I'm getting pissed. Hello? You better have an excuse. What the F? Ah, and you have no idea. So all of these sound like someone who's very frustrated, and that's understandable. You're locked out of your apartment, and your fiancé who you think is in there is not answering the door. However, the one text message that stands out to me is the, you better have an excuse. It's almost as if he runs the relationship, and she's going to have to answer to him later. Because that's not something you would normally say in a relationship. You better have an excuse. I would be worried Personally, So Samuel went down to the lobby of the apartment complex and found the security guard, Phil. He asked him if he could come up and help him open the door. Phil said that it was against regulations, so he could not help him do it. Samuel said that the security guard did, however, go back upstairs with him, but Samuel was the one to kick in the door. When he broke through the door, Samuel found Ellen unconscious and covered in blood, she was slumped up against the kitchen cabinets. Samuel called 911 at 6.33 p.m. And I'll play the 911 call for you here. Yeah, I just, I just walked to my apartment. My fiance is on the floor with blood everywhere. What is the address? 4601 Flat Rock Road. Please come help. 4601 Flat, Flat Rock Road. Is it the house or apartment? Oh, oh no. Oh, oh no. Apartment. It's an apartment. What apartment number? <laughs> Please hurry, Where please. Is she bleeding from? She, I don't know. I can't tell. She's no. so you have to calm yourself down in order to get you some help. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She. Okay. I don't know. I, I'm looking at her right now. She. I don't. I can't see anything. She didn't. There's nothing broken. She's bleeding. Ellie. You don't know where she's bleeding from, can you? Ellie, blood's coming from? It's, I think her head. I think she hit her head, I think. I think but it's all it's everywhere. Okay, so it's she, everywhere. She might have fallen. Do you know yeah. what happened? She, she, she may have slipped. There's blood on the on the table. Her, her face is a little purple. Okay, hold on for rescue for her. Stay on the phone. Uh, 4601 Flat Rock Road. Please hurry. 4601 Flat Rock? Yes. What's wrong? My, my, I just, my, I went downstairs to go work out. I came back up. The door was latched. My fiance's inside. She wasn't, she wasn't answering. So after about a half hour, I decided to break it down. I see her now just on the floor with blood. She's not, she's not responding. Okay. Is she breathing? She, I, <laughs> Look at her chest. I need you to calm down, and I need you to look at her chest. It's really I don't think she is. I really don't think she is. Listen to me. Someone's on the way. Look at her chest. Is she flat on her back? <laughs> She's on her back. So okay, I her... Look at her chest and tell me if it's going up and down, up and down. I don't see her moving. Okay, do you know how to do CPR? I don't. Okay, I can tell you what to do, okay, until they get there. I want you to keep her flat Oh, on her God. Back. Hello? Yeah, hi, okay. Are you willing to do CPR with me over the phone so they can I, get I, I have to, right? Okay, so get her flat on her back, bare her chest, okay? You want to rip her shirt off. <laughs>
call to me is a little odd because as you heard he all of a sudden discovers that there's a knife plunged into Ellen's heart well any knife that I've seen it's got a handle at least that big if not bigger if you saw someone that was bleeding or just someone in general with a knife sticking out of them I think that would be the first thing that you would notice you wouldn't get on the 911 call talk to the operator for a little while and then realize there was a knife That's something you would see right away, I'm pretty sure. The police and paramedics made it there within minutes, but it didn't make a difference. Ellen was already dead. And Samuel, before he called 911, actually made two other phone calls. These calls were made to his uncle, James Schwartzman, and his cousin, Camion Schwartzman, who were both lawyers. He made these calls at 614 and 631. Now keep in mind... 911 was not called until 6.33 p.m. Samuel's cousin, Camion, is also very well politically connected and arrived one minute after the 911 call, which was before paramedics. It's also a little odd to even suggest that someone had stabbed themselves. My first thought would be that somebody did that to them. I would never think that somebody would do this to themselves. Ellen had been stabbed to death. It was discovered that she had been stabbed 20 times and a 10-inch knife was embedded in her chest, right through her clothing. 
There was also a serrated knife that was plunged four inches into her chest. So that's two knives that Samuel didn't notice until he was on the 911 call. Two now. Samuel told police that when he arrived back from the gym, he had found that the door was locked from the inside and was unable to get in. The lock on the door corroborated Samuel's story of it being locked and him having to break it in order to get inside. The screws on the lock were loose and it appeared as if it had been forced from the outside position in. So if the front door was locked as Samuel said it was, the only other entry point to the apartment would have been the couple's balcony, which was also on the sixth floor. So that would be very difficult to access. And there was fresh snow at the time and no footprints were seen in the snow. So that rules that out. There was also no evidence of a struggle, only an overturned knife block. And nothing was taken from the apartment, so it didn't look like a robbery gone wrong either. The rest of the apartment actually seemed completely undisturbed, and there was no blood found beyond the kitchen area. Police also found a strainer full of blueberries and an orange on the counter, along with two knives, as if Ellen had been cutting fruit at the time of her attack. Police believed that Ellen had done this to herself. And on the official cause of death, it was ruled a suicide. Police searched the couple's sixth-floor apartment. Multiple prescription medicine bottles had been found in the master bedroom. At the time, Ellen was taken Klonopin, Xanax, and Ambien. When it was revealed that Ellen had been battling anxiety since 2010, that's all the police needed to say, okay, she did this to herself, case closed. Police also discovered that Ellen had seen a psychiatrist named Ellen Berman three times prior to her death. She first saw her on the 12th of January, then on the 17th of January, and her third appointment was on the 19th of January. She had a fourth one scheduled for the 27th, the day after she was found dead. According to her psychiatrist, Ellen was stressed out. Even though she loved her job and she loved her kids at school, it was still very stressful for her. Her psychiatrist said that she had some severe anxiety and she felt overwhelmed and pressured. However, she also said that she was very much looking forward to her wedding and that there were no problems with her and Samuel that she had ever spoken about. In fact, the psychiatrist said that she seemed happy when talking about Samuel. This psychiatrist was the one that prescribed the prescriptions that were found in the bedroom. And at the time, according to the autopsy report, Ellen had been taking all of them as prescribed. Ellen's mother, Sandra, had actually spoken to Ellen the morning of the 26th, as the two of them were both on their way to work. She said that there seemed to be nothing wrong with Ellen at the time, and they had a completely normal conversation over the phone. But her mom was aware that Ellen was struggling with something recently, though she didn't know what. Just about a month prior, actually, Ellen had asked her parents if she could move back home with them, and her mother never found out the reason why she asked to move back home. There was also no note left by Ellen, so that would be very strange if she was the one to do this to herself and leave no note behind. Because she seemed to love her family very much, and I don't think she would have just left them without any closure like that either. Since her death was so quickly ruled self-inflicted, there was no search done of the apartment complex or the surrounding grounds at all. While it appeared that the case was almost completely closed the very same day that Ellen's body was found, 
That all changed the very next day when the assistant medical examiner, Dr. Marlin Osborne, carried out the autopsy. Ellen had been stabbed 20 times, and 10 of these were to the back of her head and neck. They ranged from scratches to three inches deep. Two of these wounds had actually penetrated Ellen's brain. There was another stab wound to the back of Ellen's scalp, as well as one in her stomach, and eight to the chest. The medical examiner also noticed bruising to Ellen's body in various stages of healing. It's said that these would have been consistent with some type of repeated beating. And on top of all those injuries, the medical examiner said that there was evidence of strangulation in the report. But she did this to herself. So against what the investigators had said, Dr. Osborne ruled Ellen's death as a homicide. The case was handed over to the Philadelphia Homicide Unit. So Samuel was their first person of interest. He was the one who had discovered Ellen's body, and he was the only other one who really had access to the apartment, and only after he had broken the door down. So police took a look at Samuel's movements for the day. Police reviewed Samuel's key fob records as well as the security cameras in the building to make sure that when he said he had gone to the gym, he actually had. And police said that this did match up to his story. The videos also revealed that there was no sign of any unauthorized access of entrances by anyone around the time of Ellen's death. But while the Venice Lofts had surveillance cameras at the main entrance... There were none in the hallway leading up to the apartment, so police could not see what happened outside of Ellen's apartment that day. Police also spoke with Ellen's neighbors, but no one said they heard anything besides Samuel banging on the door around the time that he said he was trying to get inside. And despite the ruling of the medical examiner, police still believed that Ellen had done this to herself. They had the knives tested, and only Ellen's DNA was found on them. They also said, since there was also no sign of any disturbance or struggle, and Ellen was on anti-anxiety and anti-depression medication, that's why they thought she had done this to herself, regardless of all the other evidence. Both Clonopin and Ambien, which were the only two drugs that were found in her system at the time of the toxicology report, both list suicidal thoughts as possible side effects. So looking to further prove this, police spoke with Ellen's family. And as I had said earlier, Ellen's family said that they noticed she was going through something, but they didn't really know what. So they told police they had noticed a change in her, that she was acting odd and not herself and had asked to move home recently. Ellen's cousin, Debbie Schwab, said she noticed a difference in her. She said Ellen seemed full of anxiety. She said Ellen was very vague about what was bothering her, other than saying it had to do with school. If she was asked any further questions, there would be a very long silence. It was clear that it was something Ellen did not want to talk about. Police also stated that Ellen had conducted searches on her computer prior to her death, looking up quick and painless. It was, however, later proven that Ellen did not search for these terms. These were actually phantom searches as opposed to direct searches. Phantom searches appear because of analytics rather than her direct search terms. 
Instead, Ellen had actually been looking up her new medications and trying to see what the possible side effects of her medications would be. When she looked this up, it brought up different things about suicide since that was a possible side effect, but she had not herself actually looked up those terms. Then, just two months after his initial ruling, the medical examiner changed Ellen's cause of death from homicide to suicide by multiple stab wounds. The reversal was said to be based on a report from Dr. Lucy Rourke Adams, who is a consultant for the medical examiner's office. In this report, it was alleged that part of Ellen's spinal cord was examined, but no defect was found. An examination of that sort would normally be carried out if someone wanted to establish if the spinal cord was damaged by any of the stab wounds to the back of the neck. This information was important because had there been a defect found, that would mean that her spinal cord was damaged, which would render her incapacitated and she would therefore not be able to stab herself multiple times. It was claimed that the neuropathologist determined that the spinal cord sheath was hit, but the cord was not severed. This likely would have meant that Ellen would have been numb, but not rendered completely incapacitated. So technically, she could have stabbed herself multiple times. This decision shocked and upset Ellen's parents. They didn't think there was any way their daughter had done this to herself. So at this point, they decided to file a lawsuit against the Philadelphia County Medical Examiner's Office, as well as Dr. Osborne. This was in an attempt to get officials to change Ellen's cause of death to either homicide or undetermined. Josh and Sandra Greenberg began their own investigation. They consulted the forensic pathologist in 2012, and he noted that Ellen's case seemed very much like a homicide. And he was very concerned about the location of the stab wounds, especially the ones to the back of the neck. He said it seemed highly improbable that Ellen could have done this to herself. Obviously, we know. The family continued to fight to have their daughter's case reopened and hired a number of experts to do their own investigating, as well as double-check the work that the police were doing. One expert named Dr. Ross was concerned about the stab wound that penetrated into Ellen's brain, as he said that would cause severe pain, cranial nerve dysfunction, numbness, tingling, and an irregular heartbeat. Dr. Ross also worked with Detective Scott Edelman, and they reviewed the crime scene photos. It was discovered that in the crime scene photos, Ellen had a streak of dried blood running horizontally from her nose to her ear. So if she had indeed done this to herself and then fallen down, slumped against the cabinets, then why was there a streak of blood that was running horizontally? This may indicate that the kitchen scene was staged and that Ellen's body was actually moved afterwards. And why she didn't have any defensive wounds? Because what happened to Ellen was most likely known as a blitz attack. This is when the victim is attacked so quickly that they have no time to defend themselves. Most likely Ellen was stabbed in the back of the neck and the first stab probably rendered her incapacitated. As they said, couldn't have happened earlier. Ellen's parents worked with a company called Biomax who was able to recreate the depth and angle of the wounds on Ellen. It showed that the two wounds to the back of Ellen's head had penetrated her brain, which means that she could not have done this to herself. Two of her stab wounds 
were found to have also not bled, which means this happened post-mortem. There are also questions that remain over what tests exactly were carried out on Ellen's spinal cord. The original medical report stated that Dr. Rourke Adams had determined there was no such wound. But when Dr. Rourke Adams was reached out to, she said she had no records and no recollection of ever examining Ellen. Outside investigators also noted that the damage done to Ellen's apartment door and lock were not consistent with somebody kicking it in from the outside, as police said it had been. There's no way a lock, like the one on Ellen's door, could have been kicked in and not completely come off the door or the door frame. And the one on Ellen's apartment only had some screws missing from it. The apartment had 24-hour security, as well as a tenant keycard system, so this would have made it nearly impossible for anyone to get into Ellen's apartment against her will. The security guard that Samuel later spoke to said he was not there when Samuel kicked down the door, as he had claimed earlier. So in the lawsuit that Ellen Greenberg's parents have filed, they're seeking to have Ellen's manner of death changed to either homicide or undetermined. They cited the new information and the fact that Dr. Osborne admitted to changing the manner of death at the insistence of the police. In August of 2022, the Chester County DA's office announced that they would reopen the investigation into Ellen's death. This was after the Pennsylvania Attorney General said that they were relinquishing the case as there was a conflict of interest. Samuel Goldberg now lives in New York City with his new wife and two children, and he is a producer for NBC Sports. Ellen's funeral was held on January 28, 2011 at the Beth L. Temple Sanctuary in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She was then buried at the Chiswick Amuna Cemetery. Well, thank you for listening to all of Ellen's story today. In my opinion, there's only one person who could have done this. The one who discovered Ellen's body. The one who said he kicked in the lock. But he has ties. His lawyer, uncle, and cousin are politically connected. So is that the reason why? Ellen seemed like a kind and caring person. But she was also very private. So who knows if she had any relationship problems that she just didn't want to tell people about. Maybe she was embarrassed. The medical examiner had found bruising on her as if she had been hit before, as well as evidence of strangulation, which seems to be completely overlooked. But in the end, Ellen's parents need justice. She did not do this to herself. So let's hope we see some sort of arrest soon. It's been far too long. So if you do like true crime and you want to hear it from me, don't forget to hit that subscribe button below and give this video a like if you feel like it. All right, until next time, thanks for watching A Wicked World. Take care, guys. Bye. Thank you for being patrons of A Wicked World, Adina, Lindsay, and Catherine. You guys rock. Now, there's even more of A Wicked World on Patreon. You'll have access to exclusive videos each month and more. Any support truly helps to make sure the victims never get forgotten and to highlight the shortcomings of society associated with each case. So check it out at patreon.com slash a wicked world or use the Patreon app.